Welcome to the Seattle Public Library's podcasts of author readings and library events, a series of readings, performances, lectures, and discussions. Library podcasts are brought to you by the Seattle Public Library and Foundation. To learn more about our programs and podcasts, visit our website at www.spl.org. To learn how you can help the Library Foundation support the Seattle Public Library, go to foundation.spl.org. Thank you also for being here tonight. We are most pleased and delighted to have Paul Beatty back here in Seattle. I think he was here seven years ago when Slumberland, his most recent novel, was published eight years ago, seven years ago. But he has been to Seattle before. He is the author of three earlier novels, Slumberland, Tough, and The White Boy Shuffle, as well as two early collections of poems and um, a wonderful book of, of African-American humor, an anthology uh, entitled Hokum. That as an anthology of humor is linked to some of the common thread throughout his work, which is, uh, though it's common, it's also singular in what he does and in great in telling um, ends to, in the book he's here for tonight, a novel entitled The Sellout. I won't go into a long part about what this book, where all it goes, because just even starting to say where it's set and what happens in the settings and situations, you go, what and what again, and what ensues. But what ensues is something Paul Beatty does make happen in a way that's um, compelling, thoughtful, and deeply funny, and and certainly in the kind of funny that makes you laugh, and go, then you go, uh-oh, what am I laughing about? Because it's unsettling, and it challenges assumptions. You think, well, we're past this, or we've got that figured out, but he looks at how that, that may or may not be so. In the story of a man who um, finds himself at the outset of the book in Washington, D.C., summoned to go and appear before the Supreme Court, and that's just the beginning of, of a book that is there, is in L.A. and many other places in all sorts of ways in between. Um, it's a book that I think, of the course of the conversation, probably besides getting to hear the book itself, you'll get to uh, the, the way it's been written because of what's happened in this country or, or not happened in this country, especially since the election of Barack Obama. Um, this book is, is a book coming out while he is still president, but it's again looking at all, with all the other things going on, you know, what is or isn't changing here. And it's a great and wonderful work of literary imagination that um, also addresses realities. So with him, first Paul will read, Paul Beatty will read, and then Paul Constant will be up here with him. Paul, until recently, uh, the literature and books editor of The Stranger, and in, in doing that was not only insightful and smart about individual books and the way books get reviewed or previewed, but also about book culture and, and how books, you know, appear and get published and and uh, written and talked about and even and considered to be published. And I think, you know, for some of the things about what Paul Beatty is writing about, it'll be, be a very good person for her to hit that conversation. He is um, not disappearing from writing the writing world. He's doing some other pro- projects now. But come April, there'll be a new national online literary review or group review. It's kind of uh, actually Morgan Entry and called it like a literary Huffington Post entitled LitHub.com. And Paul will be a Seattle correspondent for that. So you can look after early April at lithub.com and see all kinds of good book things, but Paul Constant's work as well. They'll converse, and then uh, following that, take, they'll include some questions from you. There's a book that's gotten great reviews and has been get, definitely going to readers' hands. So that gets to continue tonight and will for quite some time, I'm sure. 
With that, again, for everyone at the Seattle Library and for Elliott Bay Book Company, we thank you for being here. And now I ask you to please join in welcoming one of the remarkable writers at work today, Paul Beatty. That was nice. I'm very nervous. I don't know why. <laughs> I might offend some people today. I'm sorry about that ahead of time. But uh, I've been reading this section, so I, I figure I'm just... I, I, I know how to pronounce most of the words, so I'm just going <laughs> to stick with it and take what comes. Uh, and thanks for the, the nice intro, Rick. That was great. My memories of my father aren't all bad. Though technically I was an only child, Daddy, like many black men, had lots of kids. The citizens of Dickens were his progeny. While he wasn't very good with horses, he was known around town as the nigger whisperer. Whenever some nigga who done lost a motherfucking mind needed to be talked down from a tree or freeway overpass precipice, the call would go out. My father would grab his social psychology Bible, The Planning of Change by Bennis, Benny, and Robert Chin, a woefully underappreciated Chinese-American psychologist my dad had never met but claimed as his mentor. Most kids got bedtime stories and fairy tales. I had to fall asleep to readings from chapters with titles like The Utility of Models of the Environments of Systems for Practitioners. My father was nothing if not a practitioner. I can't remember a time when he didn't bring me along on a nigger whisper. On the drive over, he'd brag that the black community was a lot like him, ABD. All but dissertation, all but defeated. When we arrived, he'd sit me on the roof of a nearby minivan or stand me atop an alleyway dumpster, hand me a legal pad, and tell me to take notes. Among all the flashing sirens, the crying and broken glass crunching softly under his buckskin shoes, I'd be so scared for him. But Daddy had a way of approaching the unapproachable. His face sympathetic and sullen, palms turned up like a dashboard Jesus figurine. He'd walk towards some knife-wielding lunatic whose pupils were dilated to the size of atoms smashed by a quart of Hennessy and a 12-pack light beer chaser. Ignoring the blood-stained work uniform caked in brain and fecal matter, he'd hug the person like he was greeting an old friend. People thought it was his selflessness that allowed him to get so close. But to me, it was his voice that got him over. Do what bass deep, my father spoke in F-sharp, a resonant low-pitched tone that rooted you in place like a Bobby Sock teenager listening to the five satins sing in the still of the night. It's not music that soothes the savage beast, but the systematic desensitization. And father's voice had a way of relaxing the enraged and allowing them to confront their fears anxiety-free. When I was in gra grade school, I knew from how the taste of the pomegranates would bring you to tears from the way the summer sun turned our afros blood orange red and from how giddy my father would get when he talked about Dodger Stadium, White Zinfandel, and the latest green flash sunset he'd seen from the summit of Mount Wilson, that California was a special place. And if you think about it, pretty much everything that made the 20th century bearable was invented in a California garage. The Apple computer, the boogie board, and gangster rap. Thanks to my dad's career in nigger whispering, I was there for the birth of the latter, when at six o'clock on a cold, dark ghetto morning, two blocks down from where I live, Carl Kilo G. Garfield, hallucinatingly high on his own supply and Alfred Lord Tennyson's brooding lyricism, burst out of his garage squinting into his moleskin, a smoldering crack pipe dangling from fingertips. It was the height of the crack rock era. I was about ten when he clambered into the bed of his tricked-out, hot-rod yellow Toyota pickup truck, the toe and the top buffed out and painted over so that the brand name on the tailgate read just yo and began reciting his verse at the top of his lungs. 
the slurred iambic pentameter punctuated with gun claps from his nickel-plated 38 and pleas from his mama to take his naked ass inside. The charge of the light-skinned spade. Half a liter, half a liter, half a liter onward. All in the alley of death rolled the old English 800. Forward the light-skinned spade. Charge for the bloods, he said. Into the alley of death rolled the old English 800. When the SWAT team finally arrived on the scene, taking cover behind patrol car doors and the sycamore trees, clutching their assault rifles to their chest, none of them could stop giggling long enough to take the kill shot. Theirs is not to reason what the fuck, theirs but to shoot and duck. Niggas to the right of them, niggas to the left of them, niggas in front of them, partied and blundered, bum-rushed at caps and hollowed point shell, why hoopty and hoodlum fell. They that had banged so well came through the jaws of death, back from the hose of hell. All that was left of them, left of the old English 800. And when my father, the nigger whisper, that beatific smile splashed across his, spa- across his face, eased his way past the police barricade, put a tweed-jacketed arm around the broken-down drug dealer, and spoke some whispered profundity into his ear, Kilo G blinked blankly like a stage show volunteer struck dumb by an Indian casino hypnotist, then calmly handed over his gun and the keys to his heart. The police closed in for the arrest, but my father asked them to stay back, beckoning Kilo to finish his poem, even joining in at the end of each line, pretending he knew the words. And when can their shine and buzz fade? Oh, the buckwild charge they made. All the motherfucking world wondered. Respect the charge they made. Respect the charge of the light-skinned spade. The noble, now empty, old English 800. The police vans and cruisers disappeared into the morning haze, leaving my father godlike, alone in the middle of the street, reveling in his humanitarianism. Cockley turned to me and said, you know what I said to get that psychotic motherfucker to lower his gun? What'd you say, Daddy? I said, brother, you have to ask yourself two questions. Who am I and how may I become myself? That's basic person-centered therapeutics. You want the client to feel important, to feel that he or she is in control of the healing process. Remember that shit. I wanted to ask him why he never spoke to me in the same reassuring tone that he used with his clients. But I knew instead of an answer, I'd get the belt, and my healing process would involve mercurochrome, and in place of being grounded a sentence of five to no less than three weeks of young and active imagination. In the distance, hurtling away from me like some distant spiral galaxy, the red and blue siren spun silently but brilliantly, lighting up the mist of the morning marine lair like some inner-city aurora borealis. I fingered the bullet hole in the tree trunk, thinking that like the slug buried ten rings deep in the trunk, Sorry, I fingered the bullet hole in the tree bark, thinking that like the slug buried ten rings deep in the trunk, I'd never leave this neighborhood, that I'd go to the local high school, graduate in the middle of my class, another willy lump-lump with a six-line resume, rife with spelling errors, trekking back and forth between the job center, the strip club parking lot, and the civil service exam tutorials. I'd marry fucking kill Marpessa Delissa Dawson, the bitch next door and my one and only love have kids, threaten them with military school and promises not to bail them out if they ever got arrested. I'd be the type of nigga who played pool at the titty bar and cheated on his wife with the blonde cheese girl from Trader Joe's on National and Westwood Boulevards. I'd stop pestering my father about my missing mother, finally admitting to myself that motherhood, like the artistic trilogy, is overrated. After a lifetime of beating myself up for never having been breastfed or finishing The Lord of the Rings, Paradise, and The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, eventually, like all lower middle-class Californians, I'd die in the same bedroom I'd grown up in, looking up at the cracks in the stucco ceiling that have been there since the 68 quake. So introspective questions like, who am I and how can I be that person, didn't pertain to me then, because I already knew the answer. 
Like the entire town of Dickens, I was my father's child, a product of my environment and nothing more. Dickens was me, and I was my father. Problem is, they both disappeared from my life, first my dad, and then my hometown. And suddenly I had no idea who I was and no clue how to become myself. Thank you. Hi. Thank you. That was, that was wonderful. Um, this also might be the first library podcast to ever need an explicit lyrics sticker on the front of it. So that's exciting. I'm glad to be a part of history. So you, you said before your reading that you were uh, nervous, and I was wondering if you could maybe talk about that a little bit. <laughs> it's a big space. That's sort of it. But uh, the book is dedicated to a really good friend of mine, Althea. She has some relatives here. Yeah, she's uh, a person who really inspired me to write the book, and uh, that's part of it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, do do West Coast audiences respond differently to this book than East Coast audiences? That's a good question. I, I don't know yet. I mean, the book has just come out, you know. Mm-hmm. The response has been pretty good, I think, all around mm-hmm. in a weird way. This is not an answer to the question, but so one thing that's interesting is uh, – you know, the book's set in L.A., and so I haven't got a lot of feedback about the L.A.-ness of the book. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think, you know, people are really interested in the play on the social politics and the discourse that happens in the book, I guess, uh-huh. <laughs> for lack of a better phrase. And so, uh, but, I mean, it's been strong all around, I think. Yeah, yeah. Is... Can I ask why you asked that, though? Why I asked that? Are because you... I was going to get into it here. Uh, Seattle is kind of a polite city that I think likes to think that it's better about things like race than it actually is, and we're very intent on having a conversation about race, and that is a great impulse, but we are kind of bad about actually talking about the parts of race that need talking about, and some of that I think is rudeness or bluntness, uh, which, which your book has, and I know you just came from Portland, Portland is very similar. It's even it's one of the only cities that's whiter than Seattle, in fact. So I just wasn't sure if anyone came to the reading not exactly sure what they were getting into and, uh, and responded by, I don't know, calling you a racist or something, like, something silly like that. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I mean, do you know of a place that has the conversation about race the way that you you're talking about? No, no, but I, I do know other places that don't congratulate themselves for having a conversation about race the way that Seattle yeah. does. All right. It's like Canada, I guess, a little bit. Very much so, very <laughs> much so, yeah. It's kind of an aggressively polite thing that doesn't necessarily get the social work done. So I'm glad you read that scene because I, I love that scene and I uh, wanted to hear it in your own voice. And you, you have a history as a poet, and I wanted to ask you if you think that there is a direct line from Tennyson to School E.D. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I used to take a class with um, Allen Ginsberg. He was my teacher once. And uh, he said to me once, I don't know if you guys know this old poet named John Skelton. You know of him? Mm-hmm. He said, he's the first rapper. <laughs> it made me go read it. But... Uh, <laughs> Do you, do you agree? Uh, no, I don't agree, but uh, <laughs> is there, a, I mean, I guess I could work really hard and draw a connection, you know. I mean, in the book, yeah, there's a connection, you know. It's just me having fun with myself first off, I guess. But uh, 
just, you know, uh, in terms of like what gangster rap is, what poetry is, and what LA is, what California is, and who his dad is, and this neighborhood. And, yeah. Okay. And did your, did your history as a poet prepare you for this book? The book reads in, in some places very, very lyrical. Like it, it could have been, you know, it could have been poetry if you, like uh, local poet Sherman Alexi says, you know, if you just put a few more spaces in between the lines, it could have been oh, a poetry really? book, yeah. Uh, then it doesn't pay as well, so I'm going to take this. <laughs> this doesn't pay great, but uh, I'm going to take the spaces out. Uh, I, I mean, I mean, uh, I wrote poetry for a while, and it's um, it's just a part of how I write, you know. Uh, you know, I labored over the poems, I labor over the prose. I mean, there's a difference, but I, I don't. I have a hard time articulating what it is, you know. And uh, I think with this book especially, I mean, it says a novel on the on the cover, but it's a, uh, you know, and I and I write about this in the book a little bit, you know, that it's masquerading as a bunch of stuff, you know, poetry, essay, you know. Straight novel. I don't know. I just, for me, all these things, I mean, they're on different train tracks, but it's kind of like one monorail kind of thing for me in a weird way. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. That was a good Seattle reference, too, the monorail. So this is something you address in the book a little bit, but I, I sort of wanted to get your own words on it. You know, Dave Chappelle famously said one of the main reasons he stopped doing his show was when he saw a white crew member laughing at a skit, and he thought that he was laughing for the wrong reason. Do you think that there are people who are laughing at your your book for the wrong reason? That's a good thing about being a writer is you don't have to deal with that very much, you know? Because <laughs> you're, I mean, apart from things like this, which is only a small snippet, you don't have to listen to it. I guess it's possible. My sister once said to me, she's a playwright. She said, you know, people are really smart, <laughs> you know, which no one ever says about anyone. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I agree with her, I guess. It took me a while to, to come to that, you know, but... um. I'm going to try to answer this somehow. I'm not sure. But uh, I, I used to teach high school dropouts. And I remember the first year I taught, I was just, you know, it's my own shortcomings. But it was, I was saddened and surprised how smart they were. I mean, the kids were brilliant. And I used to, when I was much younger, high school, early college, I used to read a lot of Studs Terkel. And... And I learned like, how, people, how smart people are when they're telling their stories and have some distance and how perceptive we can be, I guess. And, I, and, and so for me, I just have to trust that people are going to be able to read this and draw their own conclusions, but not to read past you know, the, the fact that there's a jockey on the cover and the book's about you know, sort of segregating a community and you know, the guy owns a slave, all these things that... you know are like these flashbulb kind of words and images and stuff and really just see what's behind all that and how these things are really being tied together, hopefully. You know, so, uh, you know, I, I love Dave Chappelle. And, uh, and, and I think usually when you hear an instinct, it's hard to say that that laugh was a racist laugh. You know what I mean? So, uh, you know, I don't know what that means, but I, I trust his, his ability to interpret it the way that he heard it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know if I'm making any sense. No, 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 that, that was a good answer. You, uh, as Rick said in the introduction, you published an anthology of African-American humor, and this book feels like it may have been inspired by that editing process. There are jokes throughout the book, and, and in a lot of ways it feels like a like sort of a you know, shaggy dog story. Um, it, it feels like you're escalating to a punchline. Do you, do you agree with that assessment? Do you think that the, the one book had an influence on this book, or am I just making stuff up? I, I mean, it did only in chronological order. I mean, everything, you know, every word I write, every book 
influences me, changes me somehow, you know. Mm-hmm. So in that way, but like a direct influence, I'm going to say no. I mean, I actually really, really like that book. That book is called Hokum. And uh, it's just uh, me trying to broaden the idea of what, how people see black humor, what it is. You know, I had people like Sojourner Truth in there, Malcolm X, Mike Tyson, and just all kind of stuff, you know. Yeah, I mean, I learned a lot from doing that book, so in some sense that had to be in here somehow. Like, I couldn't really point to it. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a direct influence? No. Okay. I think some of the response, maybe, that that book got is in here a little bit. Okay. If that makes like, any sense. Like what? <laughs> now I'm going to just completely unravel all the yeah, stuff you, I, you I totally don't want to talk about. Grave, but, uh, so when that book came out, I was on Tavis Smiley. So I regret this decision a little bit, but it had this beautiful cover of a watermelon rind in the shape of a smile with a black background. And again, me trying to at least stretch how we talk about this. So Tavis, of course, hadn't read the book, but he was really offended by the, uh, by the cover, which, I mean, I understand, you know, but, you know, it stuck this interesting conversation, but it made me think about the way that, hmm, the lack of irony that we talk about certain things. I kind of regret using the cover because I had other people in the book. It wasn't just me. So I regret that a little bit. It, his, his reaction and the reaction of some other people just made me think about, like, pushing these things. And, and, it, and it made me think of a... I went, do you guys know who Amiri Baraka is? I went to hear Amiri Baraka read a long time ago. And uh, I don't remember why it came up, but he was talking about Step and Fetch It. You guys know who Step and Fetch It is, I guess. It's an old, uh, what would you call step and fetch it? Like a, the next stepped up from a minstrel, you know, comedian in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and even to the 50s, I guess. But um, so he was talking about, like, the reason that step and fetch it moves so slow is because only the most servile person would run to go pick the cotton, run to go fetch the bucket of water, you know. And it just, like, opened a little thing. I was like, man, that's a really interesting way of interpreting that. So, I mean, I do that anyways, but that was a really nice concrete example. I'm not really answering your question. I'm sorry, Paul. No, no, no. That's okay. But, uh, that's okay. I'm, I'm curious about the, the cover of the book. Did you have veto power? Or was it your idea? Yeah, was, usually uh, doesn't I'm happen. really good friends with this woman named Danzy Senna. And the first cover was really bland. And she was like, no, you got to do something. And then that's what they came up with. And it was like too late in the process. But I really liked the cover. Ah, okay. And that's the writer, Danzy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, those... those uh, Denzi's book covers are always really great, too. So yeah, she, she got me in a little trouble for that one. <laughs> she's done that before. <laughs> the book is also heavy with the, the names of uh, dead novelists. You've got Dickens and Twain is in it and Don Quixote. And I think it's kind of a gutsy move to write a novel about a man who wants to return to Dickens. But maybe you don't agree? What do you mean by return to Dickens, I guess? Well, I mean, the main character, he's trying to, to resurrect Dickens. The city, which, not... The city, not... Yeah. But, you know, I mean, the one and the other. And uh, it just, it just uh, seemed like you were intentionally, at some point, sort of putting these names in there. And I guess I wasn't entirely sure why. And I was wondering if you could maybe... Illuminate, or if there was a reason, or if there wasn't, that's okay too. Uh, I, I can talk about some of it, I guess. I mean, um, yeah, I'm constantly writing about writing a little bit. I don't not, mean not directly, but just how I'm thinking about it. And I mean, it's interesting, like you know, how black authors get compared, who they want to be compared to. So that's a part of it. 
the, you know, so you mentioned Mark Twain. So uh, there's an organization in this neighborhood called the Dum Dum Donut Intellectuals. Do you guys have Yum Yum Donuts in Seattle? Probably not. It's a big chain in L.A. And uh, so they meet and they talk about black issues. It's like a think tank of mostly from people outside the neighborhood. Anyways, so the guy who's the leader of this has, like, rewritten all the classic novels that he feels are sort of offensive to African Americans. And it was sparked by, in my head at least, this discussion of, do you remember somebody reissued Huckleberry Finn without nigger in it and all this? Do you guys, does this ring a bell at all? And I actually had a good friend of mine who, uh, who was, like, in favor of that. He wrote this piece and how, you know, he was so uncomfortable reading that book to his kids and all this and I understand the discomfort, but I'm really uncomfortable with this really kind of easy reading of that book. Not to say that I love the book or anything, but there are some things that Mark Twain is trying to say, <laughs> you know. And so, uh, so it's a discussion about, you know, using this word. I'm not answering your thing. But for me, <laughs> this was really important to just talk about this. And hopefully it doesn't sound as piecemeal as I'm making it out to be. but. <laughs> and I wanted to ask you about that, too, because this strikes me as sort of a, a kitchen sink kind of book where you sort of incorporate things as they happen. I was wondering if if you agree with that assessment and if anything has happened since the book has been published that you sort of wish you could have uh, wedged into the book, if, if, that's, if that's true. Oh, no. I mean, I took a ton out, you know, but... Uh... I, I, I wouldn't say it's kitchen sink, but uh, I understand why people say that. Uh, do you know who Jason Epstein is? I uh, know. He used to run Knopf a long, long time ago in the 70s, and he's done a jillion great books. And I guess he's a fan of mine, somebody told me, and he said he read the book, and he goes, you know, the good thing about this book is uh, that it, it turns over all the furniture in the house. You know what I mean? And, uh-huh. And I, I, I don't think I'm doing that. Like, I'm not trying to consciously do that, and, but I can see why he said that. And mm-hmm. I think he meant it as a, as a compliment. Okay. Because <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know if you heard yesterday the Starbucks thing, but Starbucks announced that their baristas were, at some random occasions, were going to write hashtag race matters on a cup and give it to somebody, and then they were supposed to have a frank and open conversation about race in the Starbucks. Um, and I heard that news story. At, it was like seven in the morning, and I was like, "Man, I wish that was in the book," because I really would have liked to have heard what what would it, what you would have made of it in the context of this book in particular. But yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I really don't write about current events very often. You uh-huh. know, it's uh, it kind of bores me in a weird way. You know, mm-hmm. if something. Ten years ago, and it stays with me, then maybe, you know, because I've had time to just stew on it or it's, you know, moving around in my mind. But uh, I, I did see that. A friend of Danzy actually sent me the little story. And and then this morning I actually saw, like, this video of these two people talking. Did anyone see this video of these two people talking about this on the news? These two, uh, some, a black woman and a guy who she thinks is white, but he's not. And so it's... It's really typical about how people, you know, how this could work. I'm not sure why, you know, I haven't, I'm not following it in, in anything, but it's, 
it's really interesting that her assumptions get quickly turned around, mm-hmm. you know, about who she's talking to and how, you know, they're talking about race. You know what I mean? Yeah. And she doesn't even realize that the guy's black, you know. So, it's, uh, <laughs> so uh, that, that kind of irony, if that's the right use of the word, I love that. Okay. All right. Uh, so we're going to turn over to questions from you. Does anybody have a question? What did you major in in college? Uh, I was a psychology major. I was uh, going to grad school to get my doctorate. And like three years in, I just realized I wanted to write. And so uh, this is actually the first book where I've, you know, kind of on a surface level, but psychology is a huge part of the book. And again, me turning psychology inside and out. So the protagonist in the book, his father's a psychologist, as you may have gathered from the little bit I read, but he does all these classical experiments on his son that sort of backfire, I guess, you know, and all these. So anyways, but yeah, that's what I did. There's some great psychology jokes, especially towards the beginning. I was, I was, yeah, that, that paid off eventually. <laughs> yes. Is this a book specifically about race? No, I don't think so. It's just about what I think about. And so I'm glad you asked that, actually. It's, um, so I've been doing all this radio, all this NPR, and all this stuff, and I'm not very good about talking about what I do. But uh, So one thing I've just realized, you know, this, this uh, interview was asking me, eh, what does post-racial mean? Is there segregation? All this, you know, I'm like... I just, and you were talking about this, how do we talk about all this? And so for me, it's a thing that I am just so bored <laughs> with this. And this also this need to always go back to whatever the square one is in this topic. And it's like, I'm not saying I'm at square whatever. I might be at square negative 20, you know. But I, I can't constantly go back to this thing. So and there's a bit in the book sort of towards the beginning where I use this game, Shoots and Ladders. Do you guys know this old school game, Shoots and Ladders? And it's probably not that explicit, but it's kind of a metaphor for how this discussion moves for me, you know? And this idea that there's this end point to all these conversations, cultural, writing, social, and also, for me, the narrow focus of this. And so, you know, I'm a, a, a black person, but I see this... I think I see, I like to think that I see this discussion, even just the race part, but it's not black and white, you know, so there's, you know, and part of the, the twist of the book is that, you know, this community that's a, that reads as black is actually all Latino, you know, and it's like, what does all this mean, you know, and uh, yeah, I'm not quite answering your question, but I think there's a ton of stuff in there, I, you know, at least I'd like to think so. Yeah. But the race thing is an easy thing to talk about in a weird way, and it's it definitely is a centerpiece of the book, but it's not the the only centerpiece. If you can have more than one centerpiece, mm-hmm. why do you write? Uh, when I first started writing, somebody asked me that for uh, something, and uh, I I said I write because I don't know how to fight, you know. <laughs> and uh, it's and it I mean the real reason it's the only thing that gives me a, a certain kind of satisfaction, you know. I'm just trying to write, man. I'm not, I don't have a message, you know. I think there's some messages in there that people can glean in that, but I don't have like this. And for me, that's kind of the problem is we're waiting for these neon flashing blimps to go by, you know, with these answers. And I, I don't write like that. And, you know, and it's also this weird expectation that writers of color and people, writers that are quote marginalized or whatever, 
are supposed to come up with these answers, you know, and it's, 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 it's so uncomfortable to me, but I'm not talking about why I'm writing, I guess. I write because it's, because uh, I hate it, but I, I just, I can't help myself. <laughs> oh, no, I, I tease about the, the finance, but I used to write poetry, and uh, I, I just got really uncomfortable with the way that I started thinking about poetry and the way people started thinking about me as a poet. And again, I'm just too lazy. I don't defend myself very well, so it's easy. And my poems were getting really, really long, 30, 35 pages. And so it just kind of happened. And the other thing is, you know, as a poet, I never read a ton, but I read, a, for me, what felt like a lot. And I was writing a poem one day, and I was thinking about an audience reaction to something. And I went, whoa. And that really, I was like, this is different for me. And that just, I don't know, just, just didn't feel right. I just, I remember saying, I was actually going to, to a jazz conference and I was talking to a friend, I was like, yeah, I'm going to quit poetry. <laughs> and, uh, and I quit, yeah. That's, that's something, I think a, a lot of poets sort of hit that point. You can tell when they've passed the point where they're writing for the audience reaction and, and some poets, you can tell. Uh, especially poets who, you know, specialize in, in spoken yeah, well, that was the thing. I didn't do spoken word, you know. Mm-hmm. I just read, you know. I didn't look up. Just how I read, you know. And it, there was that push, you know, because I'm bald and whatever, you know, in some subject matter. And I just, it was just, everybody just making these easy, easy things. And I just wasn't, I just didn't have the energy to fight back against it. And against myself, actually. So it was just easier to quit. And I had a really good idea for a book, so that's what I did. <laughs> no, did you publish like this novel on your own? <laughs> No, uh, it's, uh, it's Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. It's a pretty established house, I guess. They kind enough to give me a couple shekels to uh, publish it. Who uh, were some of your influences, and what are you reading right now? It's uh, another question that's hard to answer. I mean, I don't like very much, but the things I like, I really like, you know. So, uh you know, and a, and a lot of the influencer stuff, you know, my, we, I didn't grow up with a television, but my mom had a pretty good library. So it's, you know, she had like Joseph Heller and Kurt Vonnegut and Philip Roth. And so those guys really had a huge influence on me because it was the first stuff that I read, you know, 12 years old, whatever. And so those days, but uh, for me, it's like, you know, and Richard Pryor is like one person who's like a huge influence on me somehow. I mean, he's just... Um, Everything he said has just stuck with me at some level, you know. And, you know, I learned this much later, you know, in reflection, but his vulnerability was so important to me, you know. In a weird way, we're so uncomfortable with it. I'm uncomfortable with it all the time, but it's it's just an important thing that I don't think about, but it's something that's just a part of how I think somehow. Uh, Yeah, I mean, there's a ton of stuff, you know. I'm, I'm, uh, somebody asked me to do an anthology, and I'm, so I'm doing an anthology of non-black writers writing about black people. Do you guys know this Gertrude Stein story called Melantha? Melantha, is that the name of the story? I don't know. Uh, it's in this book called Three Women, and uh, she has this phrase in there called Negro Sunshine, which I hate and love at the same time. <laughs> but it just uh, kind of sparked me to do this um, this idea of has the portrayal of black people, you know, changed over 500 years of writing or something, you know. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm doing a lot of reading for that, doing some personal reading. I read a book called The Nazi and the Barber, which no one has ever heard of, but it's a, 
a book that I don't know if I'd like, but I can't stop thinking about it. It's um, by a guy named Edgar Hilsenrat. was banned in Germany because it uh, takes the perspective of an, an SS soldier who's a concentration camp guard who kind of escapes being charged with a war crime by passing as Jewish. I'm really simple, but it's really funny. It's really bold. It's a crazy book. Is it, is it modern or is it... Uh... Yeah, he wrote it in the 70s and was banned in Germany for like 20 years and then published in the States kind of around the time, but no one's heard of it. And in Europe, it's, people have been telling me for years to read this. Huh. And it's a book that's really easy to misinterpret, you know, as like, oh, there's no culpability for the Holocaust. But that's not the intent. It's just a smart, smart book, and it's just sitting on my chest, you know, so... It's called The Nazi and the Barber. I don't want to say too much about it in case you pick it up, but uh, yeah, it's hard to find actually, which is kind of weird nowadays. It's, uh, huh. but. Right. Uh, yes, there. <laughs> uh, what happened to the documentary about status was the question that you were working on. So that's a, uh, yeah, the, uh, HBO had been doing this stacked film with a, uh, Forced Whitaker for a long time, and they'd kind of reached the impasse and brought me in to, to rewrite it, and I rewrote it. And uh, I don't know if anybody's ever done these screenplays, but it's incredibly frustrating. I put a lot of work into it, but handed it in, and you get these glowing emails. We're going to do this. I think I'm going to get paid, and I'm going to actually have something until you, but you know, then two weeks later, you get an email. They're not going to do it. So that's basically what happened. All right. Uh, last question. Yes. Yeah, the question is, what was the spark for the book? Uh, there isn't one. There's a ton of stuff. So, you know, I, I have I usually have all these ideas, and I throw out ninety percent of them, and you know, there's three or four that really I can tie a narrative to. So, one spark is I, I came up with the idea of a character named Hominy Jenkins, who was Buckwheat's understudy in The Little Rascals, <laughs> and so I just love that idea. Yeah, and then you know, how do I where do I use this? You know, like. And so uh, there's just these little kind of things. And I love the idea of this this town disappearing. I remember, you know, I read all kind of stuff, but I remember reading these sort of mythical things about Russian towns disappearing during the nuclear testing and stuff, you know, because something had gone wrong and there was so much radioactive in the town. So I don't know, just all these little things that, that, that just kind of stay with me, you know, and I try to coalesce them a little bit. So not not one thing. Okay. Uh, you can feel free to bring your questions over to the signing table. Uh, but for right now, let's thank Paul Beatty for coming to Seattle. And thank you. This podcast was presented by the Seattle Public Library and Foundation and made possible by your contributions to the Seattle Public Library Foundation. Thanks for listening.